Hi, Rarecast listeners. This is Danny Levine. Rarecast will be on a hiatus until early January. In the meantime, we're bringing some of our favorite past episodes you may have missed along the way. This week, we bring a holiday story as we speak to Caroline Harding, CEO of Genetics Disorders UK. She discusses her own journey through the rare disease world and the big impact small grants can have on transforming the lives of others. This episode originally aired November 2015. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. People often focus on the large amounts of money it takes to conduct biomedical research develop potential therapeutics, but sometimes small grants can have big impacts on the lives of people with rare diseases. Caroline Harding, CEO of Genetics Disorders UK, discusses her own journey through the rare diseases world following the birth of her son Columbus and how she saw through her own work the important role small grant making could play. We spoke to Harding about her experiences, her organization's Genes for Genes program, and how small grants can sometimes be the catalyst to transform the lives of people. Caroline, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk with you. In the rare disease world, we, we often focus on the large amounts of money it takes to conduct biomedical research and develop potential therapeutics. Today, we're going to talk about the power of small grants to impact the lives of people with rare diseases. Before we do that, I'd like to start with your own experiences and your introduction at the world of rare diseases when your first child, Columbus, was born. Can you tell me what happened and how you became aware that something was wrong? Um, well, we, he was born on uh, quite a cold January night in London, and um, the maternity ward was very warm. And he basically was the baby that cried the entire night in the ward. And uh, we, we sort of, I didn't really understand. He didn't want to feed. He was clearly a very unhappy baby. And the next morning when we were getting ready to go home, we had got him dressed up in these sort of very large all-in-ones that keep the baby snug and warm in the cold. And um, just as we were leaving the ward the nurse um was sort of smiling saying goodbye and then she turned down to look at columbus and she stopped smiling and she just sort of grabbed the baby very quickly from us and said there's something wrong with your baby and rushed him to a sort of side room and undressed him quickly and they called the pediatrician to come and and see what was wrong but there was nothing apparent that was wrong with him and um he you know over time he was undressed by this stage which is quite important when you realize what his diagnosis was but uh he sort of cooled down and um they didn't really understand what had happened so they asked me to stay in the hospital an extra day and so the next day we did leave the hospital and we were back there a week later with a very poorly baby he had a very high temperature he had great difficulty breathing. 
And he spent four days, I think, in hospital that time. We left and then we were back a week later. Again, all the same symptoms, symptoms that were very generic to an infection. Um, nobody could specify what was causing the high temperature, what was, what was causing the breathing difficulties that he was experiencing. And that was basically the pattern for a year. So I, I would say we probably knew something was wrong from when he was about 12 hours old, but it really wasn't until he was 12 months old that, that somebody diagnosed him with a rare genetic disorder called hypohydrotic ectodermal dysplasia. And one of the key elements of that genetic disorder is that the children don't have sweat glands. And, of course, looking back on it, when he was diagnosed, this is what was causing the issues immediately after birth. And um, on the day that we were trying to leave the hospital, it was so warm in the maternity ward because it was so cold outside that really he was overdressed. How does the disease manifest itself and what's the prognosis? So, well, so the prognosis is if if the if one takes care of one's children to ensure that they don't overheat or, to be honest as well, um, the cold can equally be as dangerous. So basically, if you um, look after your children to ensure that their temperature remains regulated, then they will always have to take care of themselves, but they will um, lead fulfilled lives. They they have, um, you know, compared to other conditions, they have what I probably now would consider minor issues. So they don't have any teeth. Um, so they have to get, have dentures fitted. And um, when they're older, they'll have uh, either, uh, you know, dentures or a, a full set of implants. So obviously, you know, for people who have a full set of teeth, that can feel like a huge issue. But um, I think we can we manage it, and um, the boys manage it well. Um, and other issues are um, associated generally with a lack of um, water, a lack of fluid in the body. So the boys have um, very dry eyes because they have a lack of tears. They have difficulty, um, aside from the fact they have no teeth, they have difficulty digesting food because they have little saliva that goes down into the stomach to help the the food um, break down. They also, and probably one of our major issues as well, is they have very little mucus or very um, very sort of viscous mucus. So when when we have a cold, our noses run, we blow our nose, and that's the way that we evacuate the germs and the infection. Whereas when the boys are sick, the infection remains within their nose and within the the mucus, which can solidify within their nose. So um, that that is actually what was creating all the breathing issues that Columbus had when he was born. Is we didn't realise that with every hour that passed, the mucus within him and within his nostrils and nasal passages was actually becoming very sort of solidified and thick. Well, it, it was a, a difficult. It was a difficult first year of back and forth to the hospital. What did it mean to actually get a diagnosis? How did that change things for you? It, um, well, I mean, I think probably, you know, like with, with any parent whose child is diagnosed, you probably have an enormous sense of relief on one side that you've got a name for all these random things that, that keep happening to your child. And 
you know, there's probably a sense of, um, well, I don't know, you know, overriding sense of sadness that your child might not have the life that you had probably in your head imagined they were going to lead. Um, so I think, you know, you probably feel, a, I mean, I, I, I certainly felt a combination of those two things very strongly all at once, you know, very, very glad on one side that I wasn't this, you know, overbearing mother who was making up all these symptoms that didn't appear to join together to fit some obvious um, medical condition. But at the same time, I, you know, didn't know what my sons would or wouldn't be able to do. Didn't know how society would find them and they would manage their condition within society. So, you know, I would say it was a very great mixture of feelings when they were diagnosed about, um, you know, about basically living a different life now, you know, being in a different world, having to think about things that you never thought you would think of. I mean, having, you know, even just having to learn about genetics. I knew, I can probably say I knew nothing about genetics before I had to look into it for Columbus because it just wasn't something on my radar. And with that, there was a, if I remember your comments before, a feeling of powerlessness that led you to reach out to a small charity where you offered to organize a Christmas party. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think I'm someone who I'm someone who likes to be in control of things. So when there's a problem, I will normally look at how to fix it. And of course, one of the you know biggest difficulties and things you have to overcome when you have a child with a genetic disorder is that you can't fix it. You can't make it right generally. So one of the ways that um, that that I felt I could take a bit of control was to contact the charity that looks after um, ectodermal dysplasia in the UK and offer to organise a Christmas party so that, uh, I have to say, probably quite for some sort of selfish reasons as well, so that I could get to know other people who had boys with um, this condition, so that I could myself get to, you know, meet people, understand what was lying ahead, you know, for, for us as a family. So um, well, I the, went around. I, who came sorry. to the party? I say, who, who came to the party and what was it like to, to see a room full of people with this disease? It uh, So there were about, we had about, I think, 45 families from across the UK who came to the party. And what it was like is it was actually quite... Um, it is quite extraordinary for HED because it is a genetic disorder in which the boys look very, very similar. So it is actually very strange um, in, a, in an amusing sense because suddenly you're, these families who you've never met, who you're not related to, are arriving at this party with children who look like your children. So it's actually quite, um, you know, quite an unusual experience to be at a party um, for HED but it was you know it was a lovely party it was we tried to make it um, uh, very intimate um, we had a visit from Santa we tried to make it very um, so a party where you could be at ease because lots of the um, children with ectodermal dysplasias 
Um, they, as I say, they, they don't have teeth. They also don't have hair. Now, when you are a boy affected by an ectodermal dysplasia, you know, that, that matters, but probably not to the great extent that it matters if you're a girl affected by um, an ectodermal dysplasia. And so we had girls who were able to come and take their wigs off and um, enjoy enjoy a party with no teeth and no hair, basically, and knowing that you were in a safe environment where no one would judge and it was all about being you and not how you look like. Well, you got a letter from the founder of the charity that following <laughs> spring. She shared a call she had gotten from a parent of one of the children who attended the party. What did she say? Well, what what, what she, she wrote to me about um, a mother that had contacted her. And I guess when we, you know, when I organized the party, of course I did it to help people, to bring people together, to maybe reduce some of the isolation people might feel to create these sort of informal networks that are so important to us. Um, but I never, I guess you never really can understand the impact that you might have on, a, on an individual. And um, so Diana wrote to me to say that a mother had contacted her um, because her son, who had been at the party, and I, I, I wasn't aware of this at the time, had been self-harming before he arrived at the party and um, he had been very sad and very wondering what life was going to be like for him and whether even life was worth living. And this mother said that at the party he had met um, a gentleman who uh, was far more seriously affected by ED than this boy was, but actually... The, the man had a family, he was married, he had children, he had a successful business. And I think it was a real eye-opener to this, this young man that actually you don't have to be defined by how you look and you can make life to be what you want it to be. And I think he was very inspired by meeting this man. And the mother had written to um, Diana to say thank you, basically, to, to say, you know, thank you for the change that she had seen in her son because she had seen her son transform and really see all the things he could be rather than maybe what he, you know, what he couldn't be. What, what effect did that have on you? Um, well, really quite profound. I mean, probably so profound that it made me leave my job and... and look for another role because I think, you know, you said in the introduction to this program, so many times when we're thinking about the area maybe of helping within the arena of medicine or genetics, we, we think about what millions of pounds do, hundreds of thousands of pounds do. But um, that party, I think, had, I think if I remember correctly, cost me 520 pounds. And I raised that money through family and friends and a local business. And so suddenly, if you think for £520, which is probably around $800, that you actually change someone's life and maybe even save their life. Um, and so it, it, it made me, uh, push, probably pushed me on the path to look for something. I, I was in the private sector at the time, so I decided to leave that role and look for um, some, some way that I could contribute within the charity sector. And um, and I found probably through that impetus, the role um, looking after Jeans for Jeans Day. So 
Uh, basically, Jeans for Jeans Day is a, um, a charity in the UK that raises funds to help children with genetic disorders. And uh, at that time, they were looking for a new um, chief executive. And I happened to come across that advert uh, online and thought, well, this is probably the job for me. This is the job that I have been waiting for. Um, and uh, so I think probably that that one letter and that realization of the difference that you can actually make to a person's life through something quite small um, pushed me on a new career path. I'm wondering if you would share one other story with us. You, when you were evaluating the, the mission of the organization that ran Genes for Genes Day, you got a call from a, a mother who was very distraught. And at first you thought she was a mother with a child who had just gotten a diagnosis, but that wasn't the case. Could, could you tell us what she, why she was calling? Yes, indeed. Well, you know, as you say, I sort of, we, I was very used, at the, used to at the office, you know, getting calls from particularly mothers who had just been through a diagnosis. So when I spoke to this lady on the phone and she was in tears, I, I just immediately leapt to the fact that she was going to call and tell me that she had had a child who had just been diagnosed. But what she said is her daughter, she has a daughter, and that the daughter had been diagnosed eight years before um, and had a very complex syndrome. And part of that syndrome was that she was nonverbal. So this this young girl was unable to express herself. And the woman was telling me that as the, her daughter become older, she was getting more and more frustrated and aggressive with the fact that she couldn't express um, her feelings, what she wanted. And um, the lady was telling me that she had been invited to become part of a, um, a pilot program for a communication aid, and that she had been given a. Uh, and this was in the you know in the days before we had iPads that she'd been given this communication aid to help um, with her daughter and to try to sort of try out and see and evaluate. And she said this communication aid had absolutely transformed the relationship that she had with her daughter and that overnight her daughter had gone from having these tantrums to they had started to communicate. And this woman said it had just, it had it was really like having her daughter back again. And the reason that she was calling me is because at the end of this three-month trial, the company that had given her the communication aid had taken the communication aid back. And that was the end of the pilot. And this lady was calling me to, to ask if we could help raise um, about £350, so maybe $500, $550 to help her buy a communication aid because, in her words, what she said to me is, I feel like I've lost my daughter all over again. And at the time, Jeans for Jeans was giving grants, very large grants, to um, just a few genetic disorder charities within its grant program. But as I looked at the mission and the vision for what we wanted to do, you know, and again, inspired by the story of the young boy with ectodermal dysplasia, I realized that grants don't have to be huge to make a difference. You can give a grant of £500 for a Christmas party that can make a difference to 40 families. In this case, we, you know, you can make a grant of 
um, £350 and allow a, a mother to communicate with her child. So that at that stage, we then introduced a programme and now we offer grants from £500 through to £25,000 so that even if there is a small project for a very small charity that they think could make a difference, we're able to fund that within the the programme that we have available. You know, because sometimes um, in in programmes that are run by national organisations who give grants, what they want to see often in terms of impact is, well, how many people have you helped and how many lives is this going to change? And in the world of genetic disorders, you can't always do that. Sometimes, and in the UK, we have a number, you know, many conditions where there maybe are only 5, 10, 15 people with a genetic disorder, but they still need help as much as uh, conditions with 3,000, 10,000 people. Uh-huh. So we wanted to make a grant program where you could really impact everybody at the, at the level of need that they required. What are some of the things you funded with the small grants? Um, so we fund um, we funded self-esteem weekends for young people with a variety of genetic disorders. We have um, funded the closure of a swimming pool so that children affected by CMN, which is a condition where their bodies are covered by very, very large moles, could go and have a, a fun swim without being stared at. We have funded horse whispering um, courses for children with craniofacial disorders. Uh, we funded equipment, all, all sorts of equipment from uh, specialized wheelchairs to hoists um, to specialized car seats. Uh, we funded nurses. We funded, um, you know, for many people, the family conferences that they will have with their charities are very important. But obviously, as a parent, you can't focus on that information if you've got your child there. And often your child needs specialized help. So we funded crashes with nurses on hand so that they can help, which allows parents to go and, and learn the information they need to from the specialist. So really a whole variety. There's nothing that we won't fund and don't fund. Um, we really want to make sure that the grant program, if a, if a charity thinks that there is a project that is going to make a difference to the children affected by their condition, we want them to come forward and, and talk to us about it. Why would you say small grants matter? What would you say the the collective impact of all this has been? Well, I mean, you know, I think the small small grants matter because I think they they have a ripple effect, don't they? So you can give a grant to you can give a grant to a mother with a child who will team up with another mother an affected child. And together, they will make a difference to 10 mothers. Those 10 mothers will then be able to support and advise and influence another 10 mothers. So I think if you if you give grants to the people where there is a need, where the impact of a project can be demonstrated, I think you can see your money or the impact of your money amplified across your genetic condition. I think, you know, even we give grants to um, to genetic disorder charities in the UK, but I'm sure that the work that has been funded in the UK 
has often been fed through Facebook, through websites, into the community at large, you know, in the global community affected by that genetic disorder. So I think that even if you, you know, target a small grant to a specific group of individuals, if they are passionate about the condition they're supporting, they will ensure that that money, you know, has way beyond the impact that uh, that it's initially designated for. Caroline Harding, CEO of Genetics Disorders UK. Caroline, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Daniel. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. 